Hey there, cultists. We have come here to kick ass and chew bubblegum. And we're all out of bubblegum. No, wait, there's some stuck here under the desk. Yummy. Happy New Year, and welcome to the new season of Silver Screen's Cult Classics. We hope you've had a good holiday season. And yes, we know this time of year can be so depressing. But hopefully, we'll be here for you to lift your spirits as your resolutions crumble around you and the coming year looms ahead like some sort of cyclopean monolith. This is the, hopefully, first of our regular appearances in our new slot, which is the first Tuesday of each month. That's right. We're going to try and be reliable this year and have some consistency. So we'll be here for you, same time, same place, every month. See, we're trying to comfort you already. So uh, please mark your calendars. We've got a great year of cult movies to look forward to. And as you can no doubt divine from our credits, we're switching things up a little. So if it all seems a little haphazard, please bear with us. I was just finding our feet with the new format. That's not to say it isn't always haphazard to some extent, but this time there is a reason. Not to worry, though. It's uh, not all of us. Our regular silver screen episodes that you know and love will be back later in our regular Thursday night slot. But we thought we'd give you a little variety as we expand. It's uh, Kenneth Williams' gift here. Uh, Mike isn't with us for this one, but he's got some really cool things lined up for this year. And we also may have a few surprises too, so stay tuned to our channel because we've got some good things coming your way. And after last year's Big Trouble in Little China episode, what better way to start off the year than with another John Carpenter classic, the uh, the director who is for many the one responsible for the love of cinema. Fear not though, I'm not alone on this one. As always, we've got some great guests to bat our opinions back and forth. And we've got a couple of good ones here to baptise our new format, so to speak. So without further ado, allow me to introduce them. First up, he's become something of a regular on these shows. He's a gent, a scholar, and you last heard his dulcet tones on that Big Trouble in Little China episode last year. It's Nick. Welcome, fella. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, yes, I, I do appear to be turning up on the John Carpenter ones, don't I? You do. Well, I can't think of anything, any 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 better ones to do that on, to be fair. No bad thing. <laughs> How are you doing? You have a good, uh, have a good holiday? Yeah, I'm excellent, thank you. Yes, and uh, yeah, holiday uh, is always good by default. Um, but I say I'm not convinced we're ready for a whole brand new new year. Um, Perhaps we could uh, look at something in a sort of reconditioned, uh, pre-owned one, maybe something from the early 90s, and uh, see how that goes. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, hopefully we'll uh, we'll keep your, your, keep your pecker up over the coming months. Next up, we technically have a brand new guest. She did put in a debut appearance uh, to pick Mike and my brains on our Gremlins episode back in the day. And we did say she'd be returning to take a look at They Live that following January. Alas, that didn't come to pass. And here we are a year later. You know what they say about plans. But oh, well, it's been worth waiting for. Uh -huh. It's artist Jen. Welcome. Hello. And how are you doing today? You have a good holiday? Oh, yeah. Get to see family. All that good stuff. Nice one. It's awesome to finally get, to get a nice long break from school. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's... Oh, God. Because, you know, Those I days. teach in an elementary school now, so um, anytime they're off, I'm off. Oh, fantastic. So, uh, yeah, it took a while, but, uh, but here you are. Yeah. So, well, we never had the chance before because your appearance was so fleeting, but we, we've we now got this tradition for first-timers here on the show where we ask them a particular question. So, 
Jen, as the latest cult classics semi-virgin, putting you on the spot. If if you had to choose, what would be your favourite all-time cult movie? You should already know the answer to this. Labyrinth. I don't know if that actually counts, but it is my favourite. No, no, that does count. And and <laughs> why? Why why Labyrinth for you? Art. Use of animatronics and puppets that you don't really get to see that much. That was done very well in such high detail. Music, even though a lot of people say it's some of the worst that David Bowie has ever done, I still love it. And it's, you know, the little baby that's on that movie? Yeah. The concept artist and one of the puppeteers is actually his parents. His name is actually Toby. Toby oh, nice Froud. Though. And their parents met making Dark Crystal. Oh, wow. So it's it's kind of the family business then. Uh-huh. Oh, nice one. I mean, it was Bowie and that cod piece for me. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm heterosexual, I but, you know. <laughs> Come on, I, there's, I there's, there's escape, a line. Can't escape those unfeasibly tight strides, I must admit. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. What was the other movie that he was in that he, like, played an alien? The Man Who Fell to Earth? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Yeah, he was also in a, a, a pretty a good one with uh, Jeff Goldblum, Into the Night. Either of you seen that? Mm. Don't think so, no. No. I do actually recommend that. It's uh, Jeff Goldblum and Michelle Pfeiffer. It's one of those two strangers get caught up in improbable circumstance kind of thing. And Bowie plays a kind of mustachioed twirling hitman, quite literally. So it's it's worth <laughs> checking out. Noted. Cool. So, yeah, with that. We'll get right down to today's movie, which, of course, is the 88 John Carpenter action slash sci-fi slash horror slash satire, They Live. Now, the idea for which came from a short story called Eight O'Clock in the Morning by Ray Nelson. And it was originally published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in 63. Nelson, along with artist Bill Ray, later adapted it into a story called Nada, published in the Alien Encounters comics anthology in 86. Now Carpenter acquired the film rights to both the comic book and short story and wrote the screenplay using Nelson's story as a basis for the film's structure under the pen name Frank Armitage, which was named after a character from HP from an HP Lovecraft story, of which you know Carpenter is a fan. The director's screenplay was inspired by and his response to Reaganomics. Now, for the role of Nada, Carpenter initially wanted longtime collaborator Kurt Russell, but decided against it as he'd featured in the previous four of the director's movies. Instead, he went another route, casting professional wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper, whom he'd met at WrestleMania 3 earlier in 87. The role of Frank was specifically written for Keith David. David had previously appeared in Carpenter's The Thing and impressed the director. To quote Carpenter, he was someone who wouldn't be a traditional sidekick, but could hold his own. Filming took place in the downtown uh, Los Angeles area over a period of eight weeks during March and April 88, with a budget of just a little over $3 million. Now, They Live debuted in North America on November 4th, 88, immediately hitting number one at the box office and taking 4.8 million during its opening weekend and spending a total of two weeks in the top 10 that year. It received negative reviews from most critics, however, but since then, fortunately, it's received more recognition and gained a cult following, which is the reason we're all here today. 
And John Carpenter's They Live is currently on streaming as well as being available on DVD, Blu-ray, and 4K. And for those tape heads out there, you can probably still find it in cassette too. So as usual, I'm going to throw it over to you two. What was your first experience with this one? I didn't catch this myself at the cinema. I don't honestly think it came to our local back then. There was an old guy, Mick, who uh, who ran a comic magazine stall on the local market. Good bloke. Hope you're okay, wherever you are, Mick. And I used to pick up new issues of Fangoria magazine from him. Now, I picked up a couple for a family holiday. Went to Peyton on the southern coast that year, and I read these things from cover to cover. There was a feature on They Live in there, and the idea really intrigued me. As an aside, one of the photos, as a parody mentioned, one of the creatures was actually Farrah Fawcett, long blonde hair. And the hotel owner where we were staying in believed it really was Farrah Fawcett. Uh, so, yeah, it was on my radar from that point, and I kept checking at the cinema for it to appear, but it just never did. It was uh, a couple of years later, I finally saw it on the shelf in the video store, picked it up, and the rest is history. So, uh, how about you guys? And I'll come to you first on this one, Nick. Oh, uh, as usual with these things and this question, I cannot delve far enough into my memory to remember. Uh, I definitely didn't see it at the cinema, I know that. I think I probably saw it on video around the early 90s, uh, probably, um, when I was sort of getting into, well, I'd probably seen uh, yeah, some uh, other Carpenter films I was trying out uh, more. But yeah, I can't, can't remember my first time. Uh, but uh, I've watched it a number of times over the years. It's not one I come back to as often as some of the other uh, Carpenters, like um, Escape from New York, The Thing, and of course, Big Trouble in Little China. Um, but every time I watch it, uh, I am reminded of how, uh, how much I enjoy it and how, how relevant it still is, really. Uh, yeah. But yeah, can't remember the first time, but... Uh, it's been a few times over the year, and most recently, uh, just yesterday. And how about you, Jen? I'm guessing the first time for this one was for the show? Yep. <laughs> I had to check it out from the library, because that's the only place I could get it for free. Cool. So you you never, you never really even heard of it until we brought it up as a possibility for the show? I think I've heard of, like, bits and pieces of it, just kind of like, as a side note here and there, but not really talked about as the movie. Because, I mean, the the line, we're here to kick ass and chew bubblegum, but I'm all off bubblegum or whatever. That one's a classic line that everybody says. So, I mean, my ex used to say it all the time. <laughs> that's not the reason he's an ex, I hope. No, that's a, <laughs> no, that doesn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> oh, that's, that's all right. I don't, I don't want to be bringing back any painful memories here. So, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm going under the assumption that uh, both of you, and especially, you know, you, Jen, seeing as you only watched it last year, were, uh, were fans fans of the genre anyway. So how do you feel it, you think it ranks alongside other films from that period? And when I say other films, I mean, uh, if, if you've experienced any of them, Phantasm 2, Fright Night 2, the remake of The Blob, Child's Play, Elm Street 4, Return of the Living Dead Part 2. How do you feel you've it holds up? You've literally just named um, a, a list of films that I haven't seen. Seriously? <laughs> so, well, like, I'm not even, I wasn't allowed to watch those movies because they gave me nightmares. Oh, right. <laughs> it also came, just for, just for you, Nate, it also came out the same year as Akira, 
Ah, slightly different genre. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, I don't think you can compare the two. Um, Akira would... Uh, Akira would top my list out of those two, I will admit, but I'm not, I'm a big fan of that film. Um, I mean, it's uh, 88, wasn't it? It came out. Um, yeah. I, I think it stands stands well. I think it stand, stood the test of time better than some films from that time might have done. Yeah, I I couldn't say really, because, uh, yeah, <laughs> like I say, you've named a bunch of films I haven't seen. So, uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, just, I mean, how do you feel? I mean, you touched upon it. How do you feel it ranks alongside the uh, Carpenter's other movies? I think it's up there. Um, my my favourite Carpenter films tend to be from that period, I guess, sort of, you know, the 80s, uh, really. Uh, I, I think it's up there with, with the ones I mentioned even, um, but it's just not one that I keep coming back to uh, as much. So... Yeah. But, but yeah, it's, it's it's a solid piece of carpenter film. Well, I mean, obviously, without I mean, getting into too much detail, would you would you say it still holds up? I mean, you touched upon it. It obviously was Carpenter's response to the social social situation at the time. Do you still think it's relevant? It touches upon that nerve all these years later. I think it's more relevant than ever, to be honest. Uh, not, not to get too political, but. Um, the the whole sort of aspects that i'm sure we'll get into of um you know consumerism and uh gone wild and uh commercialism and, and you know we're, we're living in an era of politics that was really kicked off by uh, reagan reaganomics and and sort of over here in this country's thatcherism um and it's sort of we're in we're in a period where it's the the con not the conclusion necessarily, but the sort of um, the extrapolation of that um, and the capitalism and commercialization. So I've, I've I've really just got to wind myself back a little bit there <laughs> before I get get off my soapbox. Uh, but yeah, I think I think some of the some of the themes it portrays are, are just as relevant now as they were in '88. Okay. And what about you, Jen? I mean, you actually live in in California. Are you anywhere near LA? Or? Uh, about four hours north, but I've spent some time in LA. I used to live in Southern California for a while. Um, it definitely is overwhelming how much, I mean, I'm looking around my room right now and I get into the whole materialistic thing way too much. I've got all these little plastic pop vinyl characters all over the walls and it kind of drives me nuts, that whole materialistic, you know, bye, 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 you're going to miss out if you don't have this. And um, watching the movie is just kind of a reminder of how bad it still is. I mean, you got the song Material Girl from the 1980s. Nothing's changed. Um, no. You have this whole mentality of you have to have it in order to be happy. You have to have it in order to be cool. You have to have it in order to be relevant. Um, and it does consume people. It does, um, money kind of is, you understand why people are making these things and why they're choosing these fast, easy ways to make them to make money because 
people want things so much. Yeah. And we need money to survive so we can buy food and everything. But it seems like we prioritize luxury items over the things we actually need to survive. Yeah. Yeah. If anything, as, as, as Nick was saying, it's, it's got worse. I mean, they were on about, you know, in the, the, it starts off. I mean, with, with when Nada's walking past his, uh, he passes that guy that's that's watching the TV in the window, and it's it that we practically worship TV. It, but it's it's only got worse from that because now we're into to phones and stuff like that. And with regards to the the politics, it's I mean, obviously it was a as as we've said, it was a response to Reaganomics. I mean, Carpenter said of the movie at the time, it was a critique of Reaganomics. It was a vehicle to take on Reaganism. Uh, over the years, though, it's it's kind of blossomed. It's kind of taken on a life of its own, and unfortunately, not not all of it has been on the the good side of things. It's led to a lot of people on on both sides of the aisle kind of co opting the message, as it were, to to level it against the opposing political side of the spectrum. We're going to have to touch upon it at some point. So what about the political allegory that, you know, it delves into? How do you feel that it's been, as I say, for want of a better term, co-opted by by one particular faction or another? Because when it came time to finding certain images for this, you type in a They Live meme or a They Live GIF on uh, the internet, and you are lambasted with obviously, you know, political uses of the gift to get one side across. And it is a both sides thing. There's 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 no doubt doubt about it. Uh but to some it has they've kind of taken it a bit a little too far. And I'm just wondering I'll I'll, I'll ask you I'll ask you on this Nick. What 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 are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean I um I'm biased by my sort of worldview uh, so I see it in a particular way you know I see it as being critical of certain things and you know, on that side and sort of that agree with my worldview um, but you know that, that's that's the beauty of art is it's open to interpretation um, and you know in the eye of the beholder as it were so you know you do get uh, other points of view and that see something else in it I would question, you know, some of those views because I understand a few years ago there was a uh, sort of neo-Nazi interpretation of it, uh, which John Carpenter, you know, came out firmly against and said it's absolutely not that. But uh, it, it, it does give you that sort of aspect of, you know, you, you, you can read into things what you want to. Um, but but I, I see it very clearly in one way, but I guess the people on the other side would see it very clearly in the way they would as well. Um, so it's a difficult one, yeah. Yeah, uh, I've, I've got a, I've got the thing here. Several neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups caught to the movie for their own purpose, spreading rumours that it's really an allegory for Jews controlling the world. This forced Carpenter to respond on Twitter in 2017 by stating, They Live is about yuppies and unrestrained capitalism. It's got nothing to do with Jewish control of the world, which is slander and a lie. And as I was researching the, the movie today, apparently, surprise, surprise, uh, one of the people who 
says that is the biggest fan of, of this movie is Alex Jones. And really? Yeah. Apparently he'd seen it at the time when he quoted 60 some times. He even had Roddy Piper on the show, on his show back then. And to me, it's one of those things where, yes, it's obviously a film based on conspiracy and that's the selling point of the actual movie. But I think it's it's you have to be careful of how far you take this thing. Uh, you know, I mean, ob obviously it, it goes into to things that we see prevalent in today's society, uh, militarization of the police, you know, the violence epidemic. Uh, but you can see little kind of seeds of what has progressed into, I'm not going to say mainstream conspiracy theory throughout a lot of the years, but you, you have groups popping up with different conspiracies, something, you know, so the 5G, the COVID, uh, you know, the obsession with, with guns, so to speak, I don't want to get too political, but you, you, <laughs> you nice. wonder, <laughs> you wonder how much it feeds this, this kind of thing can feed into someone's, for want of a better term, delusions where they will take it on board just as a way to fuel their own conspiracies and therefore sometimes act upon it. And I think if, if you did release this film these days, it would be very, you know, very kind of, you would be on dodgy ground, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, I mean, you, you look at that scene where, where Nada walks into the bank. Yeah. I mean, he comes out with that classic line, as Jen said, and for, for that moment, you are kind of laughing along with him. But then when he starts shooting, and he does ostensibly just shoot the alien creatures, as it were. But these days, I don't know about you guys, but these days, I'm, my set, my, the thought at the back of my head is the, these people, these obviously psychotic people that go out and perform these, these kind of horrific acts where, you know, predicated on gun violence, if they feel that that's what they're doing. And it, it, it puts a different spin on it for me. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. an interesting point about the writing as well and, and that scene because I, I don't feel it's a direction the film went in at all. It's played fairly straight ahead as, you know, this is what's happening. But I wonder if another take on the film might have been something along the lines of more, is he really seeing these things? Is he not? And, you know, and he's gone in with that absolute conviction. Uh, but if you saw a news story today about somebody who'd walked into a bank with a shotgun uh, and started shooting people because he believed aliens were controlling uh, the society and uh, had infiltrated us and were sort of keeping us down <laughs> for their own purposes, what would you make of that? So, yeah, it's, uh, it could could get a much rougher ride these days, definitely. Yeah. That's, that's the trouble with any kind of creative thing that you do somebody else is always going to find another interpretation of it yeah. and because we all kind of exist in these uh own personal realities my reality is going to be different from the person that lives next door because i grew up differently my morals growing up were different my vision of the world is different so it's like we literally live in separate realities and you bring in like the warshack test one person's going to see one thing another person's going to see something else yeah I mean, it's also based on, I guess you could say, their, their experiences outside of the movie. 
I mean, one of the things I found for, for years, I mean, even though Carpenter himself says it's more of a documentary than a sci-fi film, and you can see strands of that, obviously. So that's what lends it credence. But, you know, you can only take that so far. And it's like, uh, you know, certain individuals, again, I'm not going to go into it too much, certain individuals that will watch The Matrix and rather than take as, take it as pure entertainment, they will for want of a better term, see people that don't agree with them as NPCs in a, in a simulation. It's, mm. it's how far you run with things and your own, as, as Jen touched upon the experiences outside and how you grew up. I mean, for years, I've, I've, I've got it uh, during the research, I found for years after the film's release, and even on the movie's DVD commentary, Roddy Piper maintained that the film was based on an actual incident in the 50s in which a company manufactured a TV that planted subliminal messages in people's brains, instructing them to make extravagant purchases. But Piper himself was unaware that this documentary, and I'm putting in inverted quotes here, he had seen, mm -hmm. La Fair Brunswick, which was from 1978, was in fact a comedy short. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even the star of the movie there, he's he's dwelling on something that is not what he believes it is and running with it and i think that's the main problem when it comes to things like this a lot of people can see elements of conspiracy and with the best will in the world you you cannot go through life thinking that everything you are told and everything you read is 100 the truth you would be a, a fool to think so but to take it to such an extreme where everything is a conspiracy mm -hmm. i think that way lies issues uh, I believe there's a conspiracy to make people believe conspiracy theories. So let's bring that aside that way. Yeah, <laughs> I can see that. Because, like, have you ever noticed, have you noticed that it seems like because we are getting so far with medical science, we've got the whole thing where everybody is medicated one way or another, and everything is becoming so easy. Like, you can get something delivered to you within an hour or less from wherever and you don't have to do anything except press a button on your phone you can be able to not have to do anything um and you it's this mentality of making it easier and easier to not have to think yeah and the more we get into that, the dumber people become, the more compliant they become, and the more likely that you're going to be able to do these things like popularity contests for government mm. instead of having people that actually know what they're doing. I mean, yeah. look at the U.S. I, I'm not going to say it, but you know exactly what I'm talking about within the last you know, presidential elections. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's it's just it's becoming this thing of football teams almost instead of being about the actual issues people are getting onto these sides of teams and arguing with each other when it's like well you know there's a chance that you're both wrong yeah have you thought about that <laughs> oh no, yeah. no 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 we have to all be right yeah. and it's like but See, that's yeah. not the way things work yeah, yeah. So turn to the sort of the the cult of personality, uh, as you say, rather than the issues. And you know, historically, I think large numbers of people would agree that cult of personality is uh, not necessarily a good thing. Um, yeah. 
but but yeah, it's um, rather than basing your decisions on understanding what the issues are and where people stand on those issues and what they're likely to do about those and the ones that affect you, it's it's all about not necessarily just who can shout the loudest, but uh, you know who who makes the biggest impression. Well, it's like the whole thing: squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And that's like, I mean, even I, I see it at school, there's kids that are, they're so boisterous and so problematic that the students that are quiet and actually need help mm. aren't able to get it. They're not able to actually hear the lesson because there's a kid next to them going bonkers. And it, that's yeah. not really anybody's fault. It's just the kids need to learn things and learn how to behave properly and all that jazz. Yeah. But there's a line between learning how to behave properly in certain situations and then becoming completely complicit and compliant. And um, it also reminded me a lot of the book of 1984. Yeah. You know, everybody is under control of, no, you live this way. And if you don't, you're going to have to suffer horrible consequences. Yeah. I read, I read a thing that says that, uh, you know, obviously I was looking up prior to the show and it said they live was a warning by John Carpenter that we did not listen to because the, the, <laughs> the problem has increasingly got worse. Mm. Uh, but I mean, obviously I don't want to dwell on politics because I mean, it was, it is impossible to look at this movie and not touch upon it, but I don't want to spend the entire hour on it. Uh, so we'll come to the actual, the writing of the, the thing itself. So yeah, with, with bearing that in mind and say, you know, we've got the politics out of the way now, what did you think to, uh, to the writing? I mean, I will say for the amount it packs in to such a relatively short time, I think it's only about 94 minutes. I think, Carpenter does a fantastic job with this. Mm. I agree. It's very well written and it's good. It's a good story. It makes sense. It's not just a bunch of ideas thrown together in a haphazard mess, as you get sometimes when people have an idea of, uh, I want to send this message, but they have no idea how to put it together. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's, it's very coherent. It's It, it knows the the point whether you agree with the point or not uh, but it's trying to make uh, and and it gets there and yeah it's it builds very well uh, this this kind of plays into the directing for me as well as the writing but um it's it sort of draws you in straight away i think and you know you don't really know what's going on if you come into it cold you don't really know how how it's going to go uh, and then it gradually builds and builds uh until there's a there's a certain point uh where you understand sort of what's happening a bit more and then it sort of continues from there but um yeah i think it's very tightly written and uh and directed as well sorry to crossover into uh, no no that's that's yeah. fine mate I, I remember saying to you just before we started recording that i really you know i was having to watch this today for the show just to get my notes fresh and i really just wasn't in the mood but within two minutes of this being on i was just all in on it it kind of grabs you as yeah. soon as you, you start watching and it doesn't let go and i think it helps that you've just got essentially maybe two main players in this which is obviously nada and 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 frank and even frank you know is, is more the psychic character and uh, yeah i just think 
I think it's a fantastic job by Carpenter on this one. Oh yeah. yeah. And you, you know, it's a very serious message, but at the same time you're kept entertained. It's still, you know, cause it has that satirical touch to it. It's amusing at the same time without, you know, you don't feel like super depressed at the end as you do with some movies that have those serious messages. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I do think it helps with that final scene. It kind of just leaves you on oh a. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it kind of leaves you <laughs> on a humorous note. Uh, are we yeah. talking about the very final scene, the, the slightly gratuitous final scene? We, we are talking about that. What's wrong, babe? Scene. Yeah. 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 That poor woman. That poor woman. Oh my gosh! <laughs> you imagine being that person? Oh my gosh! <laughs> I did like it when it when it goes down and and it, it cuts to the news readers and one of them says, "Karen, you look like shit." <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It it can be, you know, for want of a better term, a very kind of. You could have ended it on a a down note, and, a, and when you look at the film, it does kind of end on a down note. But I think that's one of the the good things about Carpenter. He knows when to take that and twisted a little so you at least yeah. you don't you come out feeling the, incredibly depressed the comic relief yeah yeah, yeah. A, i mean it is it is kind of a, a down ending but it, it's sort of run through with a, an element of hope i mean yeah. the ending for me i mean I, I agree that the it's it's a nice bit of com comedy at the end and, and and making the point i don't know if i wouldn't have ended it with the middle finger at the end and um, whether that would be a yeah sort of more i guess slightly more ambiguous but because you're actually showing after that you're showing people sort of waking up as it were and, and seeing what's going on uh but you don't know whether they're going to fight back or just continue to be complicit in it uh, i guess yeah i mean it to me this is a very underrated film i mean 80s Carpenter, to my mind, was the best Carpenter. And yeah. he very much deserves the moniker of master, even though he refuses it. But when you look yeah. at something like this, it is a masterclass. Yeah. yeah, it's a masterclass in storytelling. As we said, yeah. it grips you from the start. And it doesn't let go because you're dying to see where, where it ends up. But even, even just prior to the credits, you still want more. Yeah. It's, and it's interesting as well because I was when I was watching it again, I was I wasn't wasn't clock watching by any means, but I suddenly realised oh the climax is coming and there's like ten minutes left of the film. It's it sort of really does sort of pack all the the real sort of climatic stuff at the end. Yeah, because it, it it's not until uh, I think you you pass the hour mark. When it gets to the point where when Nada is trying to come, and I'm putting inverted quotes here, convince Frank to put on the glasses. <laughs> convince is what. Yes. yes. Oh gosh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> very gently convince his friend. And I mean, it, we'll, we'll come on to that now. I mean, Roddy Piper. I mean, he he wasn't he wasn't the biggest fan of his own performance. And I, I think that. he does. Yeah, I think he does a really good job when you consider. I mean, obviously, you had people like Tor Johnson back in the fifties and stuff like that, but he really was kind of the pioneer of this current craze of wrestlers turning wrestlers actors. to actors. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and I think he does a really good job. I mean, apparently he wanted he wanted some kind of you know rugged individual to play Nada, and so he approached him. But apparently, uh, Vince McMahon, who who runs the WWE, is it is that how it's been referred to these days? WWF at the time, but WWE now, yeah. Yeah, he he didn't want Piper to do the film. Uh, McMahon apparently told Piper that he would find him a different film at the same pay rate within four weeks, but Piper passed and ended up uh, pretty much quitting from the WWF at the time. Uh, And Piper explains that uh, McMahon was was a control freak. He just didn't want... He didn't want it didn't want him to do it unless it was under his purview. And he says, when I came back to wrestling, I was twice as important as when I left. And Catherine says, he, he just doesn't get, doesn't get that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's fair to say that uh, Vince McMahon didn't change. He did the same thing with the rock, as I understand it. Um, yeah. He wanted to control things, but, but yeah, I, I, I applaud Roddy's decision because it was, you know, it was the right thing to do. He, he saw the value in doing this particular film. And yeah, like you say, he didn't think, as I understand it, much of his own performance, particularly there's a there's a really quiet scene that I think he does really well. I think he plays it really well when they're in the hotel room and he's sort of giving his backstory about his abusive father. Um, and he, he sort of said to Carpenter, as I understand it, that he didn't think much of his performance. He thought he could have done it better. Uh, Carpenter, Carpenter used it, you know, and I, I think he, I think he plays it really well. Yeah. And, um, but Car- I think Carpenter also said to him that he also looks back at his films and thinks of things he could have done better. So, yeah, it comes with a territory, I guess. Yeah, Car- Carpenter apparently pointed out that since then Piper had made more movies than he has, <laughs> uh, and uh, he, he said, "I've only made twenty, said John Carpenter, and Roddy Piper replied, "Yeah, but you made twenty good ones." <laughs> so yeah i mean speaking of piper i mean that obviously the the everybody knows that most famous line in this and apparently yeah. it was uh that was roddy piper uh according yeah, to Carl, uh, yeah. yeah he'd he'd written the line in his notebook of potential verbal bits during his uh his wrestling career and then <laughs> they use that and apparently he then went on to use it when he went back to wrestling. When he went back to wrestling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Brand synergy, yeah, okay. I believe I they call that. <laughs> I have to say one thing. Meg Foster in this movie, every time I've ever seen her, those eyes. Oh god. It's yeah. like, oh my gosh. And <laughs> I know that there's like no eye condition or anything, but it's just like because they ha- they're the pupils always look so constricted it's it's eerie and beautiful but like the the first time i saw her i thought she was gonna be one of the aliens (laughs) (laughs) i mean there's no doubt she's got i mean even i mean she's got a very very short you know screen presence in this but she does make an impact and again like you say it's the eyes i mean i can remember they used her for that was the that was the big kind of selling point of Meg Foster back in the eighties. She was in like things like Leviathan and Masters of the Universe, and 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 yeah, those eyes. Everyone thought for a brief period that she was wearing contacts, but yeah. I 
I may have a differing view on Meg Foster. Not, nothing about the eyes. I can't dispute the eyes. Go on. I found, yeah, I found personally her performance, I don't know, it's difficult to say because obviously she's playing, she's acting within acting um, because she's, you know, playing um, a normal person, but she's actually, spoiler alert, a collaborator. Um, so, so there's that aspect to it, but she, she always seemed a bit too, a little bit too restrained, a bit too calm, um, potentially suspiciously so, so maybe it was intentional. Um, but, but yeah, I don't know, wasn't so sure about that character. That's fair enough. And uh, what about uh, Keith David? I mean, Keith David to me is one of those reliable actors that he's always yeah. decent in anything that he's in, but he never seems to get the recognition that I, I think he deserves. Yeah, yeah. I, and this might play into that a bit, but about the only thing I was really going to say about Keith David was um, he's, he's always good value. He's He always plays well. Uh, he always does his job exceedingly well. But like you say, he's never really ascended those heights that perhaps he would deserve. Um, so, yeah. But yeah. Absolutely solid. I, th I also say, I mean, the lines that they're given, I mean, they're, they're, don't, don't get me wrong. It's it's not considered a classic by any by any means. But some of the lines that they're given, you know, especially Roddy Piper when he's he's first discovering the uh, the creatures and he says that's like putting perfume on a pig and yeah. when the, when the cop turns up and he says cut yourself shaving this morning I I, <laughs> I think he does have some really good kind of comedy chops and I think there's 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 kind of like a oh, I've 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 forgot the term now but there's so the, there's a really good use of dialogue that just basically cuts through the amount of exposition that needed and it throws these ideas at you and it throws these concepts at you and doesn't treat the audience like idiots if you know what i mean the, yeah. there's there's not a whole lot of exposition there uh, yeah but it just expects it to like it mentions the hoffman lenses you know and hoffman's obviously yeah. referring to albert hoffman uh inventor of lsd so Obviously, while you're wearing them, he, he, he does mention in the hotel, I believe it is, when uh, Frank's looking out the window, that you feel high as a kite while you're wearing them, but you come down really hard afterwards. Yeah. I, th I, I just think, I, I like, this is what I like about Carpenter. He doesn't treat his audience like morons, basically. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. It's it's one of the things I like about him. I might have said something similar on the uh, <laughs> Big Trouble with Little China. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's show don't tell, you know, they don't spend a lot of time explaining things. They just trust you as an audience to actually pick it up and understand where it is and where it's going. Exactly. I feel like that was a trend in like the 80s and the 90s that you had a lot less of the coddling, yeah. holding your hand through the stories and stuff. Like, yeah. Even as a kid in the 90s watching Batman, the animated series, they didn't treat you like little kids that didn't understand anything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, no series for children. Yeah. And I think you're right. Yeah. I think it's something that has fallen away a bit more. And now everybody's so risk averse, you know, has to get that box office. So it has to cater to everyone as much that they just 
try and put in as much as possible and, and, and to the detriment of the sort of end result in a lot of cases. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to see like Marvel is going to be putting out those R-rated movies. They're not just going to be sticking with those family-friendly movies finally. But it just... Yeah, you like you said, it takes away from the story when you have to be so cautious. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. You have to stop every five or ten minutes to just sort of turn to the audience and explain exactly what's going on. It's like yeah. almost it's, it's, as unsightly as that. It's like Jen said at the start, uh, you know, it, it is kind of a dumbing down, as it were, which is mm. ironic considering the film we're talking about, but yeah, right. it, it, I mean, there's there's a shot early on in this where everybody's obviously doing what they can to get by, and and Roddy goes to that work site and says, you know, have you got a job? And the, the foreman says, no, no, we only, you know, we only hire union workers. Mm -hmm. And then Piper looks to the left, and there's obviously, you know, a bunch of immigrants there, which pretty much states that it's it's not a union job. And but there's no need to explain it. It's yeah. just it's just there and within within five seconds you've picked up what's going on. Yeah. Yep. I mean sticking on the subject of uh, of direction with, with regards to that, uh Carpenter apparently brought real uh, homeless people into the production for several yeah. scenes and gave them uh, food as well as paychecks. Uh yeah. you know, it's Piper was saying himself game, yeah. yeah, Piper said himself said he's a, a, a pretty classy a pretty classy move although with regards to the the budget use you know that train that rolls by at the start as the credits are going up oh yeah uh, -huh. uh it costs it costs twelve thousand dollars out of the budget <laughs> to get that train to uh to roll by and then they fucked up the shot so they had to go and do it again Damn. oh no <laughs> oh this is the Man. most expensive shot in the film. Better sh make sure we don't mess it up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> Do it I, again. I, doing this podcast, I can kind of get where he's coming from on that. <laughs> yes, thankfully we have easy buttons like mute for when yeah. we have to have a coughing bit or something. <laughs> and I do think it's, again, it's going back to that kind of visual shorthand that... Uh, Carpenter hammers that point home where he in, he keeps in at the start of the movie he intercuts the uh, the homeless scenes and the cop raids with adverts for fashion houses and celebrities. Yeah, Position of the haves and the have-nots. Yeah, yeah. It ha I think it hammers the point of it home really well. And then you've got that you've got that scene shortly after that with the cops assaulting the uh, that blind preacher and the scientist. Yeah. It's incredibly visceral and then when you think about it it was only a couple of years before the uh the rodney king incident yeah it's i just i honestly i i just think this is a really underrated movie uh yeah. and i love i love the black and white filter on the uh whenever you're looking at apart from at the end where you know it knocks the signal out <clears throat> but I love the black and white filter uh, on the, the Hoffman lenses and every time it cuts to one of the aliens because it gives it that 50s sci-fi B-movie vibe. I had that very same thought, yeah. yeah. I thought it was very effective, you know. I, I guess they, you know, with the limited uh, ability to do special effects and so on, there must have been that sort of question of 
how do we represent this, the difference and so on. But uh, black and white, I thought the black and white was very effective and it, it did feel exactly that sort of 50s sci-fi paranoia kind of kind of vibe to it. Absolutely, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, especially when you've got things like those little kind of Tomorrowland-style UFO ca cameras that are flying overhead. I think that, I, I, I honestly, I mean, they do say the necessity is the mother of invention. And when you think that the, the budget for this was $3 million, it was... Yeah, I think is that in today's money, I wonder. Yeah, yeah, probably nowhere near. No, I'd no, say I think multiply close to, by yeah. at least three and then double it. Yeah, still nowhere yeah. close to no. the budget for yeah. for a film of this kind, even this sort of small film with a, a good director these days. Yeah, although we'll note that obviously to save on budget, and this is the only thing I've got for production design other than the uh, the Hoffman lenses. A Ghostbusters reference. It is. It is the yeah. Ghostbusters. <laughs> it jumps out at me every time I see it. Every time I'm like, oh, I'd it's the... forgotten about that. Yeah, they're speaking yeah. into a goddamn PKE meter. PKE meter. Yeah, I remember. I remember the last time I watched it, and this time I watched it, I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That the the let, we'll we'll come to it. We'll come to the big one, the fight sequence. What were your thoughts on that one? It's 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 a standout scene for the movie. I mean, apart from the more sort of uh, cerebral elements of it, it, it's 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 one thing it's kind of remembered for for me, and it's one thing I always remember about it. But uh, it's an excellent fight sequence. I understand it was originally just going to be a very short thing until. Uh, Keith David and Roddy Piper spent weeks rehearsing yeah. the whole sequence. <laughs> it, yeah, I've, I've got it here. It was supposed to be 20 seconds long. Yeah. But uh, wow. Piper and David decided to fight it out for real, only faking the hits to the face and groin. They rehearsed the fight for three weeks, and Carpenter was so impressed he kept it intact, which instead of 20 seconds runs to five minutes, 20 seconds now. <laughs> I was wondering why it was such a long, seemingly long fight. <laughs> and it just gets more and more. keeps going. Wow. Yeah, it gets more and more ludicrous. Uh, that's that section yeah. where he, he throws the plank and it hits the car window and, and Frank tries to smash the bottle. Just, yeah. Oh. <laughs> And he just laughs at him when it doesn't work and then carries on, yeah. Yeah, you just can't help but laugh. But I do love the fact that immediately after they walk into that hotel and their faces are all swollen. Yeah. I was going to say about the, the, the practical special effects in the film are great. Yeah. Um, like, particularly that makeup job. Although, knowing what you know about, yeah, you, you say they uh, fake the hits to the face and so on, but I wonder how much of it was actually real when they just mistimed the fake punch. Yeah, well, when you consider it, even if they, even if that's all that they were faking, you will have got some bruises out of that when they're slamming oh, each yeah. other into the concrete. And yeah, oh, absolutely. If that, if that, oh my gosh, your lead actor. like, were they at least wearing some sort of padding under their clothes, something? Yeah. I mean, it's hats off to them for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh... and then once more, we've got, uh, going on to the sound, we've got a John Carpenter, another John Carpenter and Howarth, uh, Alan Howarth soundtrack, which 
it's not as outstanding to me as the one in some of his other work, but it still works. It's it's much more subtle, but I do like the use of the harmonica mm. on top of the electronics, which, I mean, it's traditionally seen as kind of what you would say a hobo instrument. So it gets the, the vibe of Nada down. Yeah. Yeah. I'd actually say I, I, I rate this um, quite highly on John Carpenter's uh, sound effect, sound soundtrack. Sorry, because I, 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 feel, I felt like I noticed this one more. Um, the, the the soundtrack is something I don't necessarily notice as much, which is either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on the film or the intention, I guess. But I, I really like this one. It's kind of that. It's kind of a bluesy sort of ominous theme repeating through it. And like you say, there's got the the harmonica in there. There's almost a sort of Western feel to it to an extent, to an extent yeah. as well, um, which is kind of you know, in keeping because he's sort of the lone drifter wandering into town and getting into trouble and unable to help himself and being yeah. a hero kind of thing. But uh, yeah, that sort yeah. of repeating bluesy motif I, I really enjoyed. With Going back on that one with uh, regards to the, uh, the writing slash direction, uh, with the the lone drifter coming in, I do like that they make out that he's he's obviously a very Nad is very obviously a very proud man. Where mm. Frank says, you know, there's a kind of a, a flop house over on such and such street, and Piper kind of ignores him because he doesn't mm. want to show any kind of weakness, and then ends up following him anyway. Yeah, and they have so, a little exchange. Um... Yeah, I'd, I'd like to know why a man's following. I'm paraphrasing, but I'd like to know why a man's following him, following me. And he says, uh, "I like to know where a man's going before I follow him." Kind of thing. There's there's that sort of first sign of real grudging respect between them. I think there. Yeah, yeah, and I just I can't, I can't get over it. watching it how underrated it is because when when people say John Carver and they automatically go to you know halloween and the thing and and stuff like that but even yeah. i would say his, his most ardent admirers they they you know they lump in things like prince of darkness and vampires but it's not very often that you see they live mentioned and i'm just wondering why do you think that is maybe it's the thing of they're too scared of how close it comes to reality with the message on it i don't know Maybe so. Or maybe it makes people yeah. uneasy because of that. Maybe, yeah. There might be something to that because the other films that are sort of counted among his greatest are you know, very much horror, very much sci-fi, very much Eastern mystical kung fu weirdness. <laughs> Whereas this is this is much more real life. I do I do wonder actually um, if it could have been done without aliens as a sort of explanation uh for, you know, oh absolutely i i wonder if it would be more powerful more successful or, more, or less successful uh if if it was just sort of a cabal of you know really rich people which seems more likely do you think maybe there's still that element among a lot of people that think if only i work hard enough if only this if only that i will be one of these elite and so oh, this absolutely. Mm, yeah. 
that's how I they mean, get you it. still see it as a message on TV and in movies and stuff like that, that the American dream or whatever, it's still mm. obtainable. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, not just sort of the American dream as well. It's yeah, it's it's here. You know, if you if you work hard and strive, you know, one day you'll get yours kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, and if you didn't, you obviously didn't work hard enough. Exactly, yeah, and exactly, that's the, yeah. that's that's the other thing that they conflate money with actually working for it, which. Me, Nick, and myself have had this conversation many, many times. But it's Dangerously close to politics again. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, even at the start of the movie, uh, when Frank's talking to uh, Nada, and Nada says, mm. "You know, I believe in America." Yeah, uh, he's still at that point, kind of in that mindset, as it were. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's obviously resonated with audiences enough over the years you know to remain relevant just as a as a movie otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it i mean what do you think the movie's legacy has been and what you know what do you think it, it could mean going forward not what it should have been i would say <laughs> yeah i mean i was two years old when this movie came out and the first time i really ever thought about it was a year ago so it shows that it's you have to be one of a cult classic lover to really know that it exists otherwise yeah. it's kind of it's not getting the recognition that it should and it's not being seen it's not being referenced it's not you know it's kind of just fallen into the shadows fallen into the cracks and it's not just anybody's fault about like not promoting it or anything mm -hmm. of that sort we're also overloaded with entertainment options now it's like yes. we have cable at home and we have all all of these streaming services and we can still go through every single channel on the tv which is hundreds of channels and there's nothing on yeah. except repeats and crappy television yeah. yeah reality shows yeah i would agree with that but even even amongst as you, as you say even amongst sort of you know uh, carpenter fans and people who are aware of his work it's not one that comes up i mean personally if i were to ever make a, a say a top five um it, it would be in there of carpenter films absolutely and it's like I told you guys earlier, I couldn't watch most of those movies growing up. I still can't watch some of them because I have really bad nightmare issues. So this being on the list of movies related to those horror films, I would have never watched it if I hadn't been suggested to watch it for this. Yeah. Because I would have assumed that would be the exact same thing and that it would probably cause me nightmares make me feel uncomfortable whatever and i'm sure there are a lot of people that kind of look at it like that too well strangely not realizing enough, what it is <laughs> strangely enough that the, there's this conspiracy theory sprung up around its box office performance i don't know if you had read this in your research nick no <laughs> it, it debuted at number one in the american box office 
And the conspiracy is that pretty much immediately it just vanished. Uh, it was withdrawn from cinemas. And obviously the conspiracy is that, yeah, because the elite knew that, you know, people were onto them and therefore wanted to suppress the movie. I mean, it was, <laughs> but, but, you know, looking at it, it was in the top 10 for yeah. at least a couple of weeks. And anybody that wants to watch a, a Carpenter movie, because Carpenter does, or at least did back then, commanded that kind of fan following, that they would be there, uh, you know, immediately on release. So, but once that's out of the picture, it's going to slide down out of the top 10. I just, yeah. it's just a, it's just a shame. I do like the, uh, sorry, I, I, I mentioned it before. I do like the little reference as well to himself at the end where Cisco uh, yeah. and Ebert, where he's on about George Romero and John Carpenter movies. Yeah, <laughs> threw, threw himself in there. That was that was a nice little touch. Yeah, uh, yeah, some, yeah. Yeah. Do you do you guys think that this deserves its classic status, or do you think it's one of yes. those that you can look back on and go, "No, I can't really see what everybody gets with this." Uh, the former, definitely, not the latter. Agreed. That's pretty much summed that up. You know what I think. So I don't know about you two, but I think <laughs> if we've We've covered pr everything pretty well. Though, is there anything you guys think that we've missed? Anything you've picked in the movie that you don't think we've covered? I think we've uh, pretty much covered everything I thought of. There was uh, there was something else I saw about uh, Roddy Piper actually that uh, he found sort of the scenes in like the homeless camp and stuff quite difficult because he'd actually spent some time homeless himself. That's right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it was hit, hit quite close to home for him, and I think it's, I think it's, you know, a positive thing. Not not him being homeless, obviously, but it adds that sort of that air of authenticity to it to a degree. Yeah. yeah, and I do think it helps his performance because I honestly I've got yeah. no, I've got nothing against the, the guy's performance in this, even if he has. So any I don't remember being annoyed by any of the design or the makeup quality or anything like that. There's a lot of times I watch something and they do injury makeup or they just do the basic makeup on somebody and they use totally wrong color tones and it looks all yellow and orange, which should be pink or red or yeah. 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 Drives me nuts. Which and that and that reminds me, I mean, the creature design. We've we've gone all this time without mentioning the creature design. What what are your thoughts on that? It's effective, I think. It's it's fairly simple, uh, but it's effective, and it looks, yeah. yeah, it looks like an easy application of um, latex for the costumers. It, like you said, it is effective. It doesn't look super cheesy, though. It does have that yeah. little bit of slight bit of cheesiness to it to make it not look scary, um, <laughs> and it's. It's well done, well applied, and it fits for each actor. They actually fitted the ma the masks, however they chose to do it, to each actor, so they didn't all have the same size and shape, boxiness to it. And you could, they easily were able to do facial expressions and speak. Mm. So that's what makes me think that they probably did individual latex pieces, yeah, and then make up over that cool so yeah any anything anything else that you think we might have missed 
Uh, no, I don't think so. I think um did want to give a bit of a shout out to uh I think it's George Buckflower, uh the guy who plays uh he's he's well he's not he's not a drifter, Roddy the drifter, but he's like one of the homeless guys. Uh and he's oh, the like, one yeah. that uh, becomes a collaborator at the end. Yeah, I I, I thought he was good. I thought I thought he'd stand out as sort of the uh he was kind of an ornery cowboy kind of character as the um homeless guy uh and then he pops up at the end and he's all suited and booted and uh neatly neatly trimmed and so on and uh and obviously uh, he's, he's he's drunk the kool-aid he's taken the uh he's taken the deal um i thought that was a nice little turn of character there cool yeah he's, he's a decent i think I can't really, I couldn't say off the top of my head, but I think Carpenter's used him a few times before or after. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Uh, anything else, Jen? Not that I can think of. I've got my points in about it. Cool. Well, in that case, we'll uh, we'll get on with it. Now, normally we go into our favourite character line and scene, but starting from this one, I'm going to make it a little more free-flowing. So I'm going to ask you guys of what you would consider just an MVP in this one, a performance or a character that resonated with you. Um, being the uh, the first new guest this season, we'll go to you first, Jen. Anyone in this that stands out for you? Yeah, I liked Keith David as Frank. That was, that was a great character and... I think that it was very well played. It didn't seem there wasn't a hollowness to it. It didn't seem forced. It was. I don't think that the story would have gone very well if it was if he hadn't been there for definite. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's probably one of my favorite performances in it. Cool. What about you, Nick? MVP in this one? I probably have to agree to be honest it's 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 Keith David and you know he does he always does a superb job he's um just he inhabits the roles he plays and you know you believed he was Frank Armitage and yeah very solid Rod, Roddy Piper did really well I agree with there but uh for me it probably be uh it'd be Frank I think yeah that's that's fair enough that's that actually makes it three for three because I've, I've, I've got the same one keith david so uh yeah well done there keith that aside <laughs> uh have you got any particular yes. standouts from the movie have you got a favorite scene line or two a dialogue anything in script or direction <laughs> that makes this one memorable and uh, this time i'm going to come to you first nixon as you're the one laughing I, I i don't know i don't know how you can't have the bubblegum line uh it's just <laughs> It, it's it's just excellent. I came to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Fair enough. And you, Jen, anything stand out particularly for you? I, I, I thought it was a nice little touch, the scene between the two reporters. When he just looks over and he's like, you look like crap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't yeah, really. I'm going to have to pick the fight. It just, it's just ludicrous. I just love it. It's just so absurd. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, now it's time uh, to go over to what you guys out there think. And as usual, we put a request online for people's thoughts on this one. And as usual, you guys did not uh, disappoint. 
If you're a regular listener, you'll know that occasionally we've been joined by Sandy with your responses, and she's done such a good job over the last few episodes. We're hoping to make that a tradition here on Cult Classics as we go forward, if she's willing. How about it, Sandy? That sounds really fun. Oh, fantastic. I uh, I see you've got the responses to this one at the ready, but before you do, I wanted to ask if you'd seen this, and if so, what are your thoughts on uh, They Live? I I have seen it. It's been a while since I've seen it. Uh, but I remembered, I, I wasn't as impressed with the fight scene because uh, I wasn't into wrestling or anything back then. I didn't really know who these people were, but I just remember um, it kind of gave me a bit of awareness or even an awakening because I saw it, you know, at a very impressionable age. It was in my early teens and I actually credit it with me taking a more discerning look at uh, things that are being um you know, broadcast or, or given to me, like, I really, it's odd that it had, you know, such a big influence on me in that way. But I appreciated the film for that. And of course, it's, it's just over time become so classic. I always was glad that I got, you know, all the references to that movie later, because it's brought up so much and so randomly. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good one. We've been saying that it's, it's, it, it's not really listed alongside John Carpenter, even in John Carpenter circles. And it's and it's weird because it's such a good film. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I even didn't make the connection until, again, recently taking another look at the at the film for this. Oh, cool. Well, uh, again, we've got uh, quite the response on this one, yeah? We did. We have a, a lot of responses, lots of different feelings about the film. Some, you know, didn't you know, feel the same way about it or regard it as a, a cult classic. Uh, Paul Newman gave it 2.5 stars. Um, but uh, most people, most people really did like it, whether for nostalgic reasons or, you know, because they're John Carpenter fanatics, um, lots of different reasons to like it. Uh, Darren Smith gave it three stars. David Silling, 3.5 among our four stars is Joe Dunbar, Andy Green, uh, Marcella Muholland, and Alejandro Gutierrez and Randall Clark gave it 4.5 stars. Uh, quite a few uh, five stars or, you know, if they didn't specifically rate it, you know, in that category. Uh, Stephen Russell, John Smith said, it's an awesome movie. Beth Ann, Luke Smith, um, Lee Herbert said it was one of my favorites. Stuart Gray, which I'll read a bit more from him in a minute. Mark Allen, Shane Knight, Adam Turner, uh, Chalukanat Mifo, <laughs> Dean Bannerman, and Jarl Endergallen. He, um, those all gave it five stars. Uh, Stuart Gray had said it can easily be applied to whatever time you're living in. In the 80s, it was Reaganomics, consumerism, TV culture. Now can be easily applied to the opposite end of this spectrum. Uh, top platform. Uh, Pietro Kyra said it's a timeless and underrated classic. I give it four stars. Would be five if the fight scene between George Nada and Frank Armitage was wearing the glasses was at least twice as long. I think Frank <laughs> gave in too easily. <laughs> um, Adam Mass said it's a straight up 80s classic and a top five John Carpenter joint overall, at least for this fan it is. Uh, 
Brian Michael said this movie is a, a warning and become nonfiction. Carpenter was a prophet. Uh, Rick Ortiz said it's a documentary, not a fantasy sci-fi film. And we actually saw a lot of people um, saying that um, Scope B. Fallis said this movie predicted the future. And Brian McPherson said my favorite documentary. <laughs> um, Mark Burke felt it also 100%. Just look around. Um, it did bring out uh, quite a bit of... Um, uh, different opinions, like um, all, like so many people really felt like it uh, talked about uh, brainwashing and, and consumerism and watching TV. However, we saw these coming from two different sides of the political spectrum. So I thought that was interesting. At least we can come together in that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rick Marcinek said, I still rock a hoodie with WWF Vince McMahon interviewing Piper while Piper is wearing those sunglasses and exposing Vince as an alien. Love it. <laughs> um, Bendik Peertz says, I'm all out of stars. So now we're going into above five star territory. Oh, wow. And I love Sky Johnston. He gave it five sunglasses. <laughs> Um, Adam Dickerson gave it 10 out of 10. Uh, Carrie Pye said it was her favorite movie. Everyone should see it and take note or put on their sunglasses, figuratively speaking. And Patrick McCullough said five, but the Keith David Roddy Piper fight scene makes it supernova. Oh, wow. Athena Williams says, I would say five popcorns out of five. It really is a lot of fun and will always be a classic. Some have said it's Carpenter's best film with the media commercials and subliminal messages meaning. Personally, I think Halloween will always be his masterpiece, though. She said it was a very cool movie and relevant today. Obey, consume. I, too, came to kick ass and chew bubblegum. <laughs> Uh, Francesco Olinick gave it five stars, such an underrated movie gem that gets overlooked. It shows how the world and the people really people in it really are, how we should open our eyes to what's going on in the world and how we can make wake ourselves up from being badly brainwashed for so long and not even knowing it. Uh, Joey Roth says a really good film and definitely a cult classic. Roddy brought some genuine emotion to the role of Nada good social commentary that still rings true today and some fun 80s special effects. Yes, we cannot forget those. <laughs> and that's about all we have. I may have missed some and I do apologize, but overall it seems people enjoy the movie just for its, its silliness um, because it did kind of make them think about things a, a different way and, and just for the action. Yeah, most of it uh, seems to be positive this time. And, well, yeah, that is expected for fan groups. The fact that the regular page didn't receive one negative response, I mean, it shows just how much this, this resonates with people. Yes, yeah, true. I, I would like, uh, however, to give a particular shout-out to the They Live Facebook page and its owner, Patrick Cavaco, who loved the movie growing up so much, he created the page, which it's now got over 10,000 10, followers. We should be so lucky. And I'd like to say uh, thank you, Patrick. So, yeah, if you're a fan of the movie and want to see where a great deal of our responses came from, head over there and join in. And I'll put the, uh, the link in the description. So, once again, 
Thank you to you, Sandy. Are you looking forward to uh, to watching more of these movies as the new year gets underway? Very much so. I love um, actually seeing some of these movies from a different perspective, having not seen them since I was younger, watching them again. I've been having a lot of fun doing that, so I'm so glad you're kind of giving me a list to work off of. Oh, fantastic. Well, uh, yeah, that's it for this one, and we'll see you uh, next time. So thanks a lot for that, Sandy. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Again, thank you, everyone, for sharing your opinions with us. And if you're interested in giving us more of them, please keep up to date on our social media. We have some good, dare I say, iconic movies coming up this year, not only on cult classics, but on Mike's regular show, too. I guarantee you'll not want to miss them. But as always, you can reach us through the usual email or social accounts. Links in the description. So now we know what you think, it's time for us to give our final thoughts and score out a five for this one. Come on, you know the drill by now. So I'm coming over to you first, Jen. Final thoughts on Day Live. Is it a classic in your book? I think it is. I think that is something that more people need to be introduced to, which I may end up doing to a few friends of mine because they made me watch Black Rue Bonsai and I... <laughs> look at them like are you crazy <laughs> so that's that, 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 fighting much, much words <laughs> <laughs> um this is much better than that i think in my opinion um of course it's been a lot longer since i've seen buckaroo bonsai so i think that it is something that more people should be aware of existing because it's like like i mentioned earlier it's like what reading 1984 there are certain messages that we need to have repeated because as you know it's you either learn about history or you're doomed to repeat it you either are aware of these possibilities which is the whole ex the whole reason sci-fi exists is to teach us the possibilities of the future and possible consequences of our actions um and, you know, you just, people need to be more exposed to not the stuff that is just made to make people happy and hap and isn't just sex and violence or happy faces, you know, things that make them think more. So, yeah. Cool. There. Cool. And what would you give it out of five? Hmm... Four and a half. Oh, nice. What about you, Nick? I think it is a classic. I think it's a cult classic. I think it's a it's a tight ninety five minute film that has important message to give. One that's just as relevant now as it was back in the day, and it does it in, as you said. It does it in a very entertaining way. It, it draws you in and it doesn't feel like it's preaching at you or beating you over the head with this message. It's it's there and it's always sort of apparent, but it's not really forcing you to, to sort of confront that the whole time, but it does cause you to think, I think. Uh, as, as you say, it's sorry to steal the thunder, but yeah, potentially very underrated, not just as a film in general, but as part of Carpenter's own move. Uh, Apologise to any French speakers for my pronunciation of that word, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, uh, it, it's definitely a classic, and it's up there with 
some of his best, uh, some of Carpenter's best, definitely. And uh, score, I would give it. I'd give it a four. A four. Okay. Right. I'm. Uh, I'm going to say nobody does paranoia quite like John Carpenter. From Halloween three to the thing, Carpenter's productions seem to tap into that primal fear we have that those around us are not who they say they are, and they live ramps that feeling of uncertainty up to eleven. That it's also a social commentary on events that were and still are happening around us hammers that feeling of helplessness home in a way that movies before or since have done very rarely. It's at times brutal, pessimistic, and a sad indictment of the human species. Satire aside, though, it's just a damn good movie. Small cast gives decent performances. The practical effects, though sparse, are incredibly well done. And the premise and execution is a gripping one that hooks you from the opening minutes and doesn't let go. As B-movies go, it's a cut above the usual cinematic output from that time. And I would argue that this is one of Carpenter's very best. The directing is on point. And the entire thing manages to fit so much into such a small runtime, especially when you consider that over five of those 94 minutes is given over to one of the silliest fight scenes in cinema <laughs> history. It still holds up uh, and is, unfortunately, still relevant to this day and is all the more scary for it. It's not perfect, but for what it is and what it achieves, I really can't fault it. And I've also given it four and a half out of five, which gives uh, an overall total to John Carpenter's They Live, a combined score of 4.3 out of five, which I think is pretty respectable. You guys? Yeah. Absolutely. I dragged it down there slightly, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, mate. It's, uh, I mean, it is a shame that it's still relevant as a commentary and can't be enjoyed mm. just as a movie all these years on, but maybe one day can you imagine if they remade it oh god oh god no cell phones cell phone towers all that fun jazz the, the thing is it'll probably have chris pratt in it <laughs> <laughs> it'd, be, it'd have to be the rock but some well, ryan reynolds or, or john cena uh, <laughs> yes oh god it's um or stone called steve austin <laughs> oh my gosh. So, so yeah yeah nice one so that's it from us on this uh first episode of the year do you agree with us disagree do not hesitate to get in touch and let us know your thoughts in the meantime all that's left to do is to thank my guest today for joining so to you nick and jen hats off i appreciate you for helping me find my way out of the post-holiday confusion you both made it sound a lot more professional than it otherwise would have been <laughs> I'm not Happy sure to help. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for having us. <laughs> so, as I said, Nick, you're pretty much a regular on this thing now. You know how it works. Anything you'd like to draw attention to or plug while you're here? Uh, as usual, I have nothing to plug. Fantastic. Jen? Nope. Excellent. You heard it here first, folks. You can tell that Cult Classics is truly run by Gen Xers. We're all a bunch of anti-social misanthropic bastards. <laughs> we just uh, live to entertain you with our hey, love of things geek. Speak of yourselves. <laughs> I am very technically just barely Gen Y millennial by like one year. 
Jen, I've known you for some time. You're you're a Gen Xer through and through <laughs> with your <laughs> idea. <laughs> now, if, you, if you've liked the show today, then please consider showing your appreciation by dropping us a tip on our coffee account and like, subscribe, tell your friends. And if you're listening on audio, please leave us a five-star review wherever you downloaded. It may take a minute, but it's still appreciated and it will help us. We'll be back on the first Tuesday of next month to combat that February depression with another look at a cult classic. Uh, you'll want to be there for that, so mark it in your calendars. Until then, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate uh, appreciate your presence, and just remember, ain't love grand. You have been listening to The Cult Classics Show, part of the Silver Screen Podcast. Created, written, and hosted by DK. Produced by Mike Wilson. Editing by Nick. Feedback section produced by Sandy Evanson. Opening credits by Ian Sanderson. Music by Timeless Journey. Follow us on social media. Links to all of our social media pages can be found on our link tree. This podcast is part of the Mike's Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Silver Screen Podcast or Mike's Podcasts. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. Thank you for joining us. We hope to see you next time. And remember, no matter where you go, there you are. <laughs>